everyone. Good morning, everyone. Good to be with you today as we just finished, uh, hopefully, a great holiday celebration this Thanksgiving, and now we're kind of turning our gaze and attention uh, to this new season of Advent and to Christmas. And so uh, I'm, I'm grateful to be here this morning with you as we do that and looking forward to uh, this season of the year where we can uh, begin to expect and long for God to do something really great among us. I want to begin this morning uh, by uh, talking about someone who's become um, important to me as I've been studying and reading the last few years. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German theologian and pastor. He was a gifted writer and preacher. Uh, Many of his books uh, have lived uh, on to have an enormous impact on the church. And in the beginning of the 1930s, of course, as um, the Nazi regime in Germany was kind of uh, gaining power and Hitler was gaining influence and power, Bonhoeffer was also becoming more well-known as he was living abroad and he was writing and people were beginning to know who he was. And he began to have this kind of inner draw, this calling, if you will, to, to go back to Germany to help. And uh, his friends, of course, alongside him said, you, know, you can't go back, it's too dangerous, uh, Hitler's too powerful, um, the, you know, you're, you're not going to be able to survive this. And he said, no, 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 I feel like I need, I need to be there, I need to be with my people, I need to be part of this resistance. And if you're familiar with the story at all, you'll know that Bonhoeffer does go back and he does begin uh, to resist and formally do so and be a part of this movement against Hitler, uh, ultimately causing his life. As the beginning of the war uh, breaks out, he's uh, working against, and then he is arrested and imprisoned, and some of his best writings are during that time where he is in prison. And then ultimately, just a few months before the war ends, he's executed. But I want to read you something that he said when he wrote, actually while he was in prison, during the season of Advent, because I think it's a special phrase, and I think it helps us Uh, kind of frame what this season is all about. He writes this, that a prison cell in which one waits, hopes, and is completely dependent on the fact that the door of freedom has to be opened from the outside is not a bad picture of Advent. You see, Advent is when we long for the Lord's coming, that we remember his coming to us in Christ. And during these four weeks that we're going to spend, we live with this kind of expectation, this longing that God is going to come and if you will, as Bonhoeffer says, open the door of freedom for us because we cannot open it ourselves. Another writer says it perfectly. He says, over time, year and year, year, life's painful twists and turns often are erode our sense of hope. And so we begin to let our experiences erode our ability to find rest and the motivation to want something better for ourselves. But then, each year, Advent and Christmas come. And they bring a story with news of a wonderful counselor. Today we're talking about what it means to be people of hope, 
the promise of hope, and to be people of the promise. And that's the theme that we're going to be tracing these four weeks through Advent, that all of God's promises are fulfilled in Christ. All of the promises of God are fulfilled in Christ. Therefore, we are the people of promise. That's what we see in the Bible, that all of these things pointing to Jesus are fulfilled, and therefore we are the people of promise. And this comes from the Apostle Paul's letter to the Corinthians where he says this, that for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. No matter how many promises God has made, all of them have found their yes, and the amen has been spoken to the glory of God. In other words, Paul is saying to the Corinthians that you can trust what I'm saying to you, that all of these words that I'm giving to you are trustworthy because God is trustworthy. Because all of his promises have been made true and right in Jesus. All of the promises of the Bible, of the Old Testament, looking forward to the Messiah, looking forward to Jesus, all of them have found their yes in him. This morning, we uh, lit this first candle, the prophecy candle, which encourages us to do that, what Paul is saying, to go back and look at all of the promises of God in the Bible, all of these prophecies about the coming of Christ and see that they have come true in Jesus. And that's important because that means that you and I can trust him that you and I can also put our hope in him. But I think it may be helpful for us to try to define what hope is. If we were to do a man on the street poll and ask, you know, 100 people what they thought hope meant, uh, more than likely we're going to come up with 100 different answers, right? Sometimes these words are hard for us to define. But I want to try to define it uh, from what we see throughout the Old Testament and throughout the Bible, that this is it. That what, what is hope from a biblical perspective? In the Bible, hope is longing for God's presence to break into the world for our future and our good. Living with hope is longing for God's presence to break into the world for our future and our good. And I want us this morning to look at one of those Old Testament prophets, the prophet Isaiah, who is crying out for God to break into the world, who is longing for God's presence to come close again. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Isaiah 64, or if you want to use one of the Bibles that we provided, you can turn to page 609, or it'll be on the screen this morning. But as we look at this, I want us to ask this question today. How do we cultivate hope this Advent? How do we grow hope in us as the people of promise? And I want to show us that the first thing is that it brings us to cry out to God, that we cry out to him. Look at Isaiah 64, starting in that first verse. He says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. 
As when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil, come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. Come down, Lord. See, Isaiah is looking out over Israel and their situation, and he's seeing how far they've fallen, how far away they seem from God, and how far away God seems from them. They've been conquered by other nations. They've been brought into exile. They just, they just don't feel like the people of God. And yet Isaiah cries out to him that God would come again, that he would rip open the heavens and come close in a big way that would change everything. See, in other words, this situation for Israel is, is bleak. There doesn't seem to be hope at all. But there is hope because Isaiah is crying out to God. He's longing for him to break into their world again and to show up for their future and for their good. And that's what living with real biblical hope looks like. And here's something I want us to consider. You know, hope Hope is different than optimism, right? Hope is much more meaningful than being just optimistic. One of my favorite quotes from anyone is from Dr. Cornell West, and he describes the difference between hope and optimism. This is what he says. Hope and optimism are different. Optimism tends to be based on the notion that there's enough evidence out there to believe things are going to be better, much more rational, deeply secular, whereas hope looks at the evidence and says, it doesn't look good at all. Doesn't look good at all. Going to go beyond the evidence to create new possibilities based on visions that become contagious, right? To allow people to engage in heroic actions, always against the odds, no guarantee whatsoever. That's hope. I'm a prisoner of hope going to die a prisoner of hope. See, hope is much stronger than optimism. It's much more resilient than being optimistic. And I think for many of us, we've been cultivating optimism in our lives more than we've been cultivating hope. We've been growing optimism often instead of growing hope. And what do I mean by that? Maybe, maybe we've been trying for a long time to kind of coach ourselves to be more optimistic in life, right? Or to have a better outlook, or to be more positive. Maybe define the silver lining in a situation, or look on the bright side, right? All of these cliches that we have. But I think hope is much more deeper than that. Hope, according to the Bible, is that when things are bad, when they're bleak, like they were for God's people much of the time. Hope is crying out to God that he would come and do something, fix it, break into the world, change our future, do something for our good, even if things don't look good at all. When things around us are falling apart, hope is crying out to him to come down. And what happens when we do that? Well, when we begin to cry out to God, we slowly 
begin to remember just how often God has shown up in the past into our broken lives. And so how do we cultivate hope this Advent? Well, we, we cry out to God right, for him to come down. But secondly, we also remember what he has done in the past. We remember what he has done in the past. This is what Isaiah is getting at. Look at verse 3 with me in Isaiah 64. He says, For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, nor ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to help those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. See, there are two powerful words, I think, in there that jump out at us. And the reason they jump out at us is because they're two words, two ideas that we often don't do very well. And yet they're two things that Advent asks of us. To wait and to remember. To wait and remember that those who wait for him, as we do in Advent, we wait for the coming of Christ, those who wait for him find hope. Right? To live with hope is the promise that we long for, that we have as the people of promise, even if we have to wait for it, and sometimes we have to wait for it a very long time. Right? That's the uncomfortable part. And so if you are waiting for God to come in, to break through, to come closer to us, what do we do while we wait? Well, Isaiah says we remember. We remember all the things that God has done in the past, all the ways that he's already broken into our lives, done something remarkable and changed us. And when we do that, when we begin to remember what God has done, always it's going to bring us to remember what he has rescued us from. That Isaiah is looking out, he's seeing how difficult things are, how they've lost this feeling that they are truly the people of God, where God seems so far away. It's that feeling that comes when we wander away from God. It's exactly what happened to Adam and Eve when they wandered away from God's commands in the Garden of Eden. When they chose to go their own way, right then, sin comes into the world and separates us from God. And things become difficult and the situation becomes bleak until God does what? He comes close to his people again. And this is the story we read over and over and over. This is my story. This is your story. And Isaiah knows that because he looks at the people's sin and this is what he says in verse 6. All of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf and like the wind our sins sweep us away. Here's the reality. He says that even the good things, even the righteous things that we do, they're, they're just not good enough. They're filthy in God's sight. And this is, this is the very bad news 
of the gospel that reminds us that God has to punish our sin. He has to punish our sin because he is a holy God and a just God. And if we're to grow in hope, it's going to bring us to remember that this is true of us. But this is what growing in hope also does. While we're remembering that, it's also reminding us of the very, very good news of the gospel. And this is what Isaiah immediately gets to. Look at verse 8. He says, Yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are the work of your hand. And so do not be angry beyond measure. Lord, do not remember our sins forever. See, Isaiah remembers that God has always been faithful. That when the people do cry out, when they do remember him, he comes close to them. And this is what he does in Advent. He comes close to us in Jesus as the Christ child of Christmas. God breaks into our world for our good and for our future by becoming a man and by living a perfect life so that he could become the perfect sacrifice for our sin. And when we remember that that's what God has done at Christmas, when we remember that it's not you or I that is punished on the cross, but it's Jesus who is punished on the cross so that our sins could be remembered by God no more. Well, then Advent brings very good news. It brings very good news that our relationship with God, our Father, can be restored because he's come close to us. And it brings even greater news than that because it also invites us to look at the resurrection of Jesus. If God has come to us once, as Pastor Dudley said, in this first advent in Christ, the resurrection of Jesus, the hope that it gives us, allows us to look forward to another resurrection, to another advent when Jesus will come to make all things new, all things right and good again, our future secure because we are the people of promise. So this morning we've said that if we're going to grow hope, cultivate hope in us, we have to cry out to God and we also have to remember what he has done. And that's something we can be working on this Advent together. As we kind of bring to a close this morning, I want to do some application, and I want you to hear this and really see that this is what God is doing in all of us and how the story of Advent can come home. That you and I, you are the good work of God's hands. That this is, when God comes close, this is what he is doing in us. You are the good work of God's hands, no matter how long it seems like it's taking. Here's what I mean. I want to describe it for you. Uh, Margaret Feinberg is an author, and she describes, uh, she gave this talk on uh, Napa Valley on leadership. And she describes going to these two vineyards and watching the entire process, and she was just mesmerized by it. And she, she writes this. She said that the first year that a winemaker plants shoots of vines, rather, plants vines rather than seeds because 
these yield the strongest vines. And at the end of the first growing season, he cuts them back. And then a second year passes, and he cuts them back again. Only after the third year does he see his first viable cluster of grapes. And so serious winemakers leave those clusters on the vines. For most, it's not until year four that they bring in their first harvest. For those growing grapes, they bottle the harvest, but they won't taste the fruit of their labors until year seven or year eight. Most vineyards in Napa Valley won't even reach a break-even point until year 15, 16, or 17. And here's how she translates that into our lives with God. She says this, Sometimes I look at my own life and I wonder, why am I not more fruitful? Why does pruning have to hurt so much? Why does cultivating a healthy crop take so long? But God's perspective is much different. Like a good winemaker, he knows how to bring about fruitfulness better than I ever will. And he is patient with me, more patient than I am with myself. The first harvest of our labors may not even come for three to five years. Now, I know we don't all want to hear that, right? The change and growing and seeing that we are God's work, the work of his hands, it takes time. It causes us to cry out to him. It causes us to wait for him, to long for him. But he's working. And this comes from this great promise that perhaps the greatest promise that we could see fulfilled in Jesus, finding its yes in Jesus from the Apostle Paul when he says that we are God's handiwork. You and I are God's work in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You see, that's true because you and I are children of God. Because you and I have been accepted and brought into this relationship with him where we can cry out to him, where he can come close to us and we can be changed by him. Why? Because you and I are the clay in the hands of the great potter. We are the artwork by the great artist. We have a, a lot of artwork in our home. My wife and I, we just over the years, somehow we've been able to collect a number of pieces and, and known some friends who are artists and kind of have their work in our house. And so we've got kind of different things around. Uh, But we have two pieces that kind of came to us through an entirely different story, and I want to show them to you. They're from the Miami-based artist named Lebo. He's a Cuban-American who, uh, if you go down to Miami, you'll see a lot of his work on the big walls throughout the city, uh, gained a lot of kind of prominence over the last 10 years. But I want to show you two of them, and I'll explain how they they came to us. This is one of them that hangs in our home, very kind of Miami-ish, you can see. And, uh, and then this one is actually hanging over the entire wall. It's way too big for our, for our wall. On the top there it says, on a clear day, I can see for miles. But here's the story. One day, uh, my mother-in-law called us and said that she was outside and her neighbor was carrying these two paintings out to the trash heap. And she stopped him and she said, what, what are you doing with those? And turns out he was a, 
insurance adjuster and a client of his had these in his home. They were commission pieces. If you turn them over, you can see the inscription from the artist. But they had damage in the home, some kind of water damage you can kind of see along the bottom there. And so the client didn't want them anymore and the adjuster had them and he didn't want them so he was just going to throw them out. So my mother-in-law grabs them and takes them and uh, calls us and I knew who he was and I was like, yes, I, we want those, right? All of a sudden I'm feeling like this very kind of serious art patron, right? Get to have these hanging in our home and I want to learn about them, I want to read about Uh, what they're all about, try to find out something about them. And as I began to research how this works, I realized that there's a very interesting relationship between the artist and the artwork. That when an artist is commissioned, right, for a piece of art, and if at the end of that process, he or she doesn't really like it, well, they can disown it. They can say, no, 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 I don't consider that to be a part of my portfolio. Or if the piece somehow uh, gets damaged, right? An artist can kind of distance themselves and says, no, that's not a piece that I recognize. So you're reading about how this all works and yet you're seeing the inscription on the back and it's hanging in our homes and all the while you're trying to think, you know, what's the story of this? Where is this, what is this worth? What's the value? This morning I want you to hear this that you and I are the good work of God's hands. You are the clay, as Isaiah says, in the hands of the great potter. You are the art, the beautiful art, the work of the great artist. And he will never abandon you. He will never disown you. And no matter the damage that sin kind of brings into our lives, through the grace and mercy of Jesus, that damage is swept away and we are valued, we are prized. And this is, as the people of promise, the greatest promise that we could hold on to. That we are God's work, that he is doing something in us even when we can't see him, even when we may be crying out when we're waiting for him to come. As we do this Advent, we practice that. We wait for God to come. And all the while, his promise that he is doing something in you is coming true. And secondly, we're reminded through that great passage that Paul gives us that we are the amen of God's yes in Christ. All of the promises have come true even the promise that you are God's work, his handiwork, that he's moving in you as you wait for him. But secondly, we are the amen. Meaning that together, as God's people of promise, as we hear the promises of God made true in Christ, we stand and we say amen. Yes, we believe that. Those things are true. True hope is found in Jesus. That's what Advent teaches us, that we can cry out to God to break into our little worlds and fill us with hope, that we can remember all of the ways he's done that in the past and we can wait on him and be changed on him. And this Advent, that's what God asks us to do as well, 
that as we wait these four weeks, we wait for God to come, to come close. And then we look forward to his coming again, that he'll come and finish the good work that he has started in all of us and in the world. And so maybe our project these next few weeks during Advent is to try and grow hope, not optimism, right? To remember all that God's done more and to remember that we are clay in his hands. We are the good work. We are the art that he is making. And then together we can stand and say to the world, amen, yes, everything that God has promised has come true in Jesus. That's what we're invited into at this time of year. So let's remember that together, okay? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we, uh, Lord, we have examples from your word of people who often felt like you were not close. Lord, entire generations, and yet, Lord, we're told to cry out to you, to call on you, to let that bring us, instill hope in us that we would call on you and hope that you would break into our lives, that you would come close. And as we remember what you've done in Jesus, that what Advent begins, this work of rescue and redemption, Lord, as we remember that, Lord, we are moved by your grace and mercy towards us that we could see ourselves as the clay that you are forming into something beautiful. God, I pray for anyone who may be having difficulty believing that this morning, wrestling with whether or not you do really care or if we're valued by you or if you are making us into something good at all. God, may we know that hope is believing that you are doing in some, something in us for our good. And we find that hope in your son, Jesus. We ask all these things, God, during this season of the year that you would come close and fill us with your spirit. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.